Oh yeah, dig it! Welcome, one and all, to the first official episode of the Macho Movie Man podcast. I am very pleased to be welcoming you to this. Like I said in my intro, it's a, it's going to be a work in progress. Uh, it's going to take some time for me to really get into the flow of how to really do a podcast, but hopefully soon enough I'll start to have I'll be starting to have guests. Uh and by guests I mean friends. Uh but uh yeah. So the first film we're going to be reviewing is Goldeneye. The nineteen ninety five James Bond film Goldeneye. Now why am I reviewing a movie that is now twenty five years old? Well, let me take you back to the before time. A year ago, uh, just as COVID hit and really started to screw up the world. Uh, I was really anticipating the release of No Time to Die, which was originally meant to come out around this time last year. Uh, in anticipation of that, I started a series on my Instagram called the License to Review series, which was me reviewing all the, diff- all the James Bond films up until Spectre in anticipation of the release of No Time to Die. Uh, Those were well received. Uh, I was having a lot of fun. There was one film I was really looking forward to talking about, and that was Goldeneye, because Goldeneye is my favourite James Bond film. Uh, I love it, and I was was looking forward to being able to talk about it. Uh, And then the pandemic happened, and... No Time to Die got pushed to November of 2020. So I put the series on hold at that moment. I was, I think I was around the early Roger Moore films. I'd gotten through the Sean Connery era and then the George Lazenby film on Her Majesty's Secret Service. So yeah, I was somewhere within the early Roger Moore years. So I was a little while off Goldeneye anyway. But uh, yeah, so I put that on the shelf and then I brought it back closer to November thinking, oh yeah, the film's going to come out in November, hopefully. And then it didn't, so I shelved it again. Uh, and then I, do, I, and I don't know when I'm actually going to start it up again. But I still, I really wanted to talk about Goldeneye. That was the review I was most looking forward to, those Bond films. So I've decided that I'm not going to wait until... No Time to Die releases at some point, hopefully in cinemas, because they really need the money. But uh, I'm not going to wait until then. I'm going to do it now. I'm going to start off this show with a movie that I really like. Uh, One that I know that I can talk about. I know a lot of the scar surrounding the film, uh, because that's the format I want to do. I want to do... I'm very much inspired by... Dan Merle's All My Movies, which is a YouTube channel you should all uh, watch if you love movies the way I do. Uh, he basically, he does his introduction and then he talks about some of the background to the film. Then he goes in depth about the film and then he talks about the impact, the financial returns of the film. So it just gives a really good overall snapshot of the film. Uh, and that's what I'm going to do. This is my intro. I've discussed why I'm talking about it. Uh, so I'm going to go into the background of this film. Uh, because there's a couple interesting things about this film in terms of background. Uh, obviously, it's the 17th film in the franchise. Uh, it came after the longest gap between Bond films that there had ever been at that point. Uh, which was six years. Six years between this and the previous film... Licensed to Kill, which was Timothy Dalton's second film in the role of James Bond, and also his last. Uh, it didn't do very well at the box office, Licensed to Kill. Uh, and then MGM was having uh, financial trouble at the tail end of the 80s into the 90s. So the film, so the series sort of put on hold for a while while they were trying to figure out what to do next. And then Timothy Dalton bailed on them. So they had to go and get Pierce Brosnan, uh, who is my favorite Bond as well. Uh, he was, I think, he was the first Bond I ever saw. 
Uh, I don't... GoldenEye wasn't the first Bond film I ever saw. I have vague memories of what was the first film I saw. I think it was Tomorrow Never Dies. So while I would count Daniel Craig as the Bond of my generation and kind of my Bond, he isn't my favourite Bond. Pierce Brosnan is. Uh, and I'll talk as to why I feel Pierce Brosnan is my favourite later on in the review. But so Pierce Brosnan was brought in to replace Tim Lee Dalton. But interestingly enough, the original plan back in 1986 was Pierce Brosnan was meant to be James Bond ten, almost 10 years earlier than he actually did in GoldenEye. Because when Roger Moore left the role after A View to a Kill in 1985, Pierce Brosnan was the person that Eon Studios wanted to bring into the role. He was hot. Uh, he was really hot at that point in time because of the TV show Remington Steel that he was on. Uh, Pierce Brosnan's wife, who has since uh, unfortunately passed away, uh, one of his wives, uh, she was a bon- She had a small role in For Your Eyes Only, which was one of uh, the Roger Moore Bond films. Uh, Pierce Brosnan had visited her, visited her on the set while they were filming for Your Eyes Only. The producers had talked to him and they really liked Brosnan and they thought, oh, this is, this is someone to watch out for because at that point the writing was starting to be on the wall for Roger Moore. He was starting to get a bit old. For Your Eyes Only especially, his age was starting to show because he was shifting with some Bond girls, some younger women. And it was kind of it was it was kind of gross in a way because he was at that point he was looking old enough to be their granddad, uh. But he stayed on for a couple more films, eventually leaving at in nineteen eighty five. So they wanted Pierce Brosnan, and Pierce Brosnan was pretty much signed to the role, uh. In I think it was nineteen eighty six or eighty five. But yeah, after Roger Moore, he was signed on to play Bond. But just before they were announcing him to the public, uh, the TV studio behind Remington Steel, which was still airing at that point, uh, pulled the rug out from one of them and said, no, you can't have him. He's still contractually obliged to this show. It's been renewed for a couple more seasons. So Pierce Brosnan couldn't take the role, unfortunately. And that's how we got Timothy Dalton. But by the time Timothy Dalton had left the role... Uh, in the mid-90s, uh, Remington Seal had ended, so Pierce Brosnan was free to be James Bond at last. Uh, there was a lot of other actors who had been considered for the role as well, which is something that kind of happens every generation. I don't think our generation has had that moment yet, just because Daniel Craig has been in the role for so long. He is actually the longest-tenured Bond at this point in time. Uh, he has been in the role since 2005. Wow. But, uh, yes. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a few of the actors who had been in talks to play Bond uh, around that late 80s, early 90s time frame, both after Roger Moore had left and after Dalton had left. Uh, Sean Bean, who plays the villain here, he was considered. Liam Neeson was considered. Paul McGann, uh, who played the Eighth Doctor in Doctor Who, he was considered. Ray Fiennes, which is very weird looking back now because he's the current M. Uh, so yeah, so there's a generation of British acting talent, male acting talent, who could have very well been Bond if circumstances hadn't have gone on the way they did kind of in the same way as you know once Daniel Craig leaves there's going to be a bunch of people who were considered for the role but didn't get it you know like we're going to be hearing oh Tom Hardy was considered Idris Elba was considered I don't think either of them are going to get it but those are the people who are going to be talking about in 10-15 years as like they could have been Bond but they weren't uh the cast includes Pierce Brosnan as James Bond his first of four films in the role. Sean Bean playing the villain Alec Trevelyan, a former a former double O agent turned rogue villain. Uh Famke Janssen, uh, who a lot of you may know as Jean Grey from the original X-Men trilogy. She plays the uh hypersexual 
female, uh, what's the, what's the word? Um, henchman, henchwoman, uh, Xenia on the top, <laughs> joining the long, illustrious history of sexually suggestive female names for Bond female characters. Uh, Isabella Skorupko, I believe I'm pronouncing that name right. I'm probably not. She plays the main Bond girl, Natalia Semenova. Also, again, apologies, I definitely ruined that pronunciation there. Uh, Alan Cummings plays uh, Boris, a computer programmer who almost steals the show with just how obnoxiously obnoxious he is. Uh, he, he's, he's tremendous in this. I'll talk about him later on. Uh, and then with the new Bond, you also had a couple of changes in regards to MI5 personnel. Uh, mainly a new M in the form of Judy Dench. Her first of what would eventually go on to be, I believe, eight. This is her first of eight appearances in the Bond f- series as M. Uh, she was so well-liked in this role that when they rebooted the entire series, they kept her on regardless. Uh, which goes to show just how well she did in this role. This was her first film. There was a bit of, there was a bit of hoopla uh, at first about the idea of a female M. Some people were happy with it. Some people weren't happy with it. You know what that's like. It's 2021. That happens for every casting choice now. This was just an early case of, oh, feminazis. Uh, but look how it turned out. So, fuck them. Uh, yes. Uh, and then obviously in the role of Money Penny, you have the actress Samantha Bond. Yes, I know the irony of Money Penny being played by an actress whose last name is Bond. It was almost like she was made for the role. Uh, and she's great. She remained until die another day uh uh and then obviously desmond llewellyn continues to play q he has been play he'd been playing q since the sean connery days uh and he again he he was always a highlight of these older bond films and here especially him and pierce brosnan just have tremendous banter and chemistry together that's something i will talk about later on in, in the review uh, and then you also have smaller characters like Gottfried John as Ormov, the traitorous Russian general who's in line, who's in cahoots with uh, Sean Bean's villain. Uh, Joe Don Baker, who weirdly enough played a villain in The Living Daylights. Uh, he plays the stand-in for Felix Leiter here, a character called... Oh, I can't remember the character's name now. Oh, God. Um, something, he, he plays a CIA help to James Bond, pretty much. Uh, I just think it is kind of strange how uh, within, within less than 10 years, he went from playing a Bond villain to being a Bond ally on screen. Uh, Jack Wade, that's the name of his character, Jack Wade. Uh, so yes, he's, he is kind of, he is the only actor in history to ever play a Bond villain and then a Bond ally. Uh, but different roles, different roles. I know so, before someone comes at me like, what about Jaws? Uh, and then, interestingly enough, this was fun, Robbie Coltrane as a Russian gangster named Valentin Sakovsky. Uh, this was uh, six years before his most iconic role as Hagrid in the Harry Potter films. And no matter how many times I watch this movie, I just cannot unsee Hagrid in that role. It's just Hagrid trying to pretend to be a tough Russian mobster. But he is fun in these movies. He returns later on in uh, The World Is Not Enough, uh, Brosnan's third outing. Uh, so yes, that's the cast. Uh, and an- one very, very important thing to know about the background to this film is that this came out in 1995. The previous James Bond film had come out in 1989. One massive thing in the world happened between 1989 and 1995. In fact, two things. One, the fall of the Soviet Union, and two, the end of the Cold War. This was the first James Bond film to take place after the Cold War. 
So all the other James Bond films had been within the Cold War. This was the first where there was no Soviet Union, no communists. You know, the Russians were the Russians were technically the good guys in a sense. Uh, and that shows on screen because this was actually the first ever James Bond film to be filmed in any way in Russia. Like this film, there's a set in this film, bit in this film where it's set in St. Petersburg. They actually got to film in St. Petersburg. And I think someone involved with the production may have openly said, it's just like, you know, the Cold War's over now because we're filming James Bond in Russia. But uh, yeah, so that's, that's a bit of the background to this film. Some other notable details. This was the first James Bond film ever to not have anything to do with some... Ian Fleming novel or short story. This is an entirely original story, not based off anything Fleming wrote. Although the name Goldeneye does come from the name of Ian Fleming's house in Jamaica, where he wrote the first couple James Bond films back, books, books, sorry, the first few James Bond books back in the 50s. Uh, so yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's the main thing. Also, another point on that first after the Cold War film, the reason that's brought up is because going into this film, after the financial failure of License to Kill and the six-year gap and the financial issues for MGM, uh, Eon's parent company, uh, people are starting to wonder, what is the future for this franchise? Because Bond was at home within the Cold War. We'd never seen a Bond film outside the Cold War. People were wondering, does the character still have legs in this new world? So there was a lot riding on this film. If this film had failed, I do not think we'd still have Bond films coming out to this day. But it succeeded and we're going to talk why. So now we're going we're gonna to run through the film. Uh, beat by... Mostly beat by beat. I've seen it enough times to kind of know the general gist of it. At this point, if you have not seen Goldeneye, please turn off this review now. Because I don't want to be hockeyed out of it for spoilers. I will put a spoiler warning up right now. Right now. Do not continue if you have not seen Goldeneye. Because I am going to spoil it for you. So please go out and wa go and watch it. It's a really good movie. A lot of fun. So now, yes, everyone, everyone who's still here should have seen Goldeneye. If not, get out now. For everyone who has seen Goldeneye, let's get to it. It starts off, uh, at in it. It starts off with James Bond doing one of the best stunts in the entire series for my money. Top top three, I feel, outside of the, obviously outside of the parkour chase in Casino Royale and also the bridge jump in The Man with the Golden Gun, which unfortunately is slightly sullied by that goddamn whistle sound effect. But uh, so he's he's at this dam in somewhere in the Soviet Union. This happens nine years. This, hap this, is, this scene is set in 1986. So it's still the Cold War. Uh, he jumps off this dam, which is attached to a base, a secret Russian base. Uh, so we and we get our first action sequence. Him and Alec Trevelyan, who was another double O at this point, and they have to blow up this base. A lot of pe some people of an older generation will remember this action sequence mainly because of the GoldenEye game, which I again will talk about in the cultural impact section of this review. So yes, uh, but during this mission, uh, Alec Trevelyan is killed, or well, Bond thinks he's killed. Uh, by Ormoff, the general. Uh, but Bond blows up the base anyway and gets away after a really cool scene sequence involving Bond jumping into a plane while it's falling off a cliff and steering it away from certain death in only, in only a way that Bond could. Uh, and then we get the Tina Turner intro song, it's quite good. It's a it's a nice mix of power ballad and sort of jumpy, upbeat sort of you know, it has that sexiness while also being a ballad that you kinda it's a good mix of multiple forms of Bond songs. And I quite like it. Uh and then it cuts to six years nine years later, sorry. 
nine years later and Bond is in Monte Carlo with a psychological analyst from MI6. He's driving in his Aston Martin. He's all cool. He gets into a bit of a race with Famke Janssen's uh, Xenia Onatop in a Ferrari and we get a nice car, we get nice little car sequence. He eventually woos the psycho, psycho, psycho apologies, I will get this, I will get this goddamn word, psychoanalysis, psychologist woman from MI6. Uh, he woos her. Uh, we don't, obviously, we don't see him have sex with her, but yes, it's very obvious he woos her. Then he goes to a, a Monte Carlo casino, all dressed up dapper. He meets Xenia on the top again. He gets his first Bond, James Bond line. He nails it. And he finds out that Xenia Onatop is quite sussy. Uh, and she, she's friends with a French general who has the codes to this big fancy helicopter that uh, is being unveiled the following day. Uh, so Bond gets a little bit of information about Xenia. It then cuts to a scene in Xenia's bedroom where she murders the general via sex, pretty much. Uh, so we get the gimmick of Xenia as a henchwoman. She loves sex and she murders people by strangling them with her fires around their waist. It, it's weird, it's weird, but it's Bond in the 90s. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, and then it eventually she eventually steals the helicopter and flies it off to Russia to a secret satellite base called in Severnaya, Russia. This is where we meet the main Bond girl, uh, Natalia. She's a programmer. Uh, we also meet Boris, the villainous programmer. And we see that he is, he's just a cocky little shit. Const cracking into the US Justice Department. You know, we get his uh, catchphrase, I am invincible. Uh, as I said, Alan Cumming, great work here. One of, one of the most memorable third henchman I can remember in a Bond film. Uh, what else? What then? Uh, and then it cuts back. In it cuts between uh, the base and MI6 where Bond, Bond has his flirtation with Moneypenny. Uh, he meet, we meet M for the first time. It's the first scene involving Tanner in any Bond film. This is the first, this is the debut of the character of Tanner who is sort of uh, a stooge to M. Uh, he's later played, in, in more recent films he's been played by Rory Kinnear a fantastic character actor, but uh, I can't remember who, I don't know who plays him here, but he also does well in the role. Uh, so we cut between there, them talking about where the helicopter is and the helicopter arriving at the base in Russia with uh, Xenia and Ormov. Uh, and uh, they go in, they get the codes for the Golden Eye while we're interspersed with MI Bond and MI6 talking about what GoldenEye is, we get the gist that it's this big space satellite that knock, that's a, works basically as a big massive EMP that just destroys anything with an electronic circuit wherever it's targeted. Uh, so it's very much point made clear that this is not something to fuck with. Obviously, you, you, can, you know what the damage is, they tell you what it is. And then uh, everyone at the station just gets wiped out in a hail of gunfire. Uh, the bad guys leave the base with the codes. Uh, and yeah, and then they fire at the Golden Knight at the base, blows it to smithereens. They think everyone survives, but uh, Natalia, who just about escapes uh, the hail of gunfire, uh, she escapes. And then it cuts back to MI6, where Bond and M just, like, see that the base has just completely been wiped off the map. They go, what the fuck? Uh, so, and then it cuts to the first real one-on-one -on -one conversation between Brosnan's Bond and Judy Dench's M. And we really get a taste of what Judy Dench can do in this role. She hands Bond his ass in one of the best M moments in any Bond film ever. She just lays it into him, calling him a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War. You really know from the 
get-go that this M is a cold bitch not to be fucked with, but she still does have some form of care for Bond. Uh, she sends him off to basically find out what's, what's up because the theft of the helicopter has been traced back to this crime syndicate in Russia called the Yanis Corp, Yanis Syndicate. She says, go find Yanis. She tells him that Omop is linked. Uh, we get this really touching, really interesting base of dialogue where it's kind of shown to us that Bond is still hurt about what happened to Alex Trevelyan nine years earlier. You know, he says, you know, you weren't the one that got him killed. So it's set up that Bond still has lingering upset towards what happened to his friend. He kind of blames himself. So it's introduced to us that this is personal for Bond because he blames Armoff and himself pretty much for the death of Alec Trevelyan. She tells him, don't turn this into some sort of revenge suicide mission. So it's remo- So we are kept in our heads that Alec Trevelyan is important to this story. Uh, he gets to Moscow and meets up with Jack Wade. Wade tells him about Tchaikovsky. He goes to Tchaikovsky in this dingy strip club where we have a cameo from Minnie Driver who plays uh, Tchaikovsky's mistress and absolutely just ruins a cover of... Uh, Stand by our man. You know, the joke is that she's a terrible singer. But uh, Sarkovsky is protective of her uh, by the fact that he nearly shoots Bond for saying that she's shit. Uh, and then you, you get the dynamic between Bond and Sarkovsky. They've had a run-in before. Sarkovsky has a limp that uh, Bond gave him because he shot him in the leg. Uh, but he does... He strikes a deal and just... Uh, with Tchaikovsky, I'll give you this money if you tell me about Yanis. He tells him that, you know, Yanis has this train and eventually just he arranges a meeting in a cemetery later that evening. Uh, Bond goes to the cemetery. Uh, oh, no, no. In between that, we show that uh, Natalia has survived what happened at the base. She's made it to St. Petersburg. Although it's, it is meant, it's meant to be Moscow, but it's St. Petersburg. Uh, she makes it to the city. Uh, she meets up with Boris, but Boris sells her out to Xenia. So we know that Natalia's been captured. Bond gets to the cemetery. Uh, and it's revealed that, oh, Alec Trevelyan is the main villain. Whoa, big bombshell moment. Bond is shocked. You know, being... Sean Bean is just tremendously villainous in his performance here. Uh, you know, tells him, you know, so on and so forth. Like, you never expected it was me. And then we've... it's some, an in, A point that's introduced by Sikovsky is uh, the fact that Alec Trevelyan is a Leance Cossack. I believe that's how you pronounce it. His parents come from an, a group of Russians. They were... Which, this is legit. Uh a group of ethnic Russians and Ukrainians who, during the First World War, not the, not the First World War, Second World War, sided with the Germans, the Nazis, against the Soviet Union, uh, who and they thought they had safety, they thought they were going to get safety in the UK after the war, but the UK sold them out to the Russians and sent them back to Stalin, who had pretty much all of them executed, bar one or two. Trevelyan's parents were one of the few that survived, but the trauma of uh, that experience caused the father to later kill himself and his wife, leaving Alec as an orphan, which MI6 took advantage of because it's said that they knew his background, but they still took him because he was an orphan like Bond is, but they just thought he wouldn't remember what happened to his parents. Uh, but he did, so this is why Bot Trevelyan is trying to basically settle a score against England that's 50 years in the making. Uh, I, I, I like that, you know. I like that he actually took something from history that I didn't know about. This was something new. I didn't know this was real. I just thought this was something made up by the movies, because movies do that. They make up all kinds of stuff. For backgrounds and ethnicities, you know, they they make up entire countries sometimes. 
but I like that they did bring in an element of history because I always like how this film is the one Bond film that really kind of showed and talked about the shadow of the Cold War in the post-war years, you know. There's a lot of talk during the section set in Russia about Russia's this new country, free market economy, all that. Uh, you know, like the Russian government aren't the villains here, it's traitors within. But, uh, so I like that. It's a, it, it is an explanation as to why he's a bad guy now. Uh, so yes, he knocks out Bond, Bond wakes up, he's in a heli- he's in the helicopter with uh, Natalia. He has to escape before two missiles get him. They escape out of an, out in a, in a, an ejector button, uh, but uh, Ormoff and his men uh, round them up and arrest them anyway once they get out, which, which is actually very smart in a way because it shows that Trevelyan knows Bond well enough to know that Bond could get out of a situation like that so that he would have a backup option in place. And that's one of the things that why, that's one of the reasons why Sean Bean in this movie is one of my favorite Bond villains. Because this was the first, this was the first time that they ever really did a rogue double O agent as the main villain. Which is really weird because that, that hasn't happened, that that had never happened in a Bond film before. Uh, and it only really happened one other time besides this movie, and that's Skyfall. So in however many, like there's been almost 25 Bond films at this point, uh, but that plot line has only been used twice which is bizarre because if you look at the Mission Impossible series, every film in that series has a rogue IMF agent, you know? Like, it's a cliche in the Mission Impossible series, which has been going for a fraction of how long the Bond films have. But yes, you know, Bond isn't able to survive without using that cliche. But I like it here because, again, it's the first time, so it's the first time we have a villain who really feels a physical match, and that's shown later on in the film in the third act. But also mentally as well, because he was also a double O agent, and he was Bond's friend, so he knows how to get inside Bond's head. He knows where Bond's soft spots are emotionally, which I'll talk about again a little bit later on when we get into the third act. But yeah, so basically... This is how Bond and Natalia meet each other. They're re- they're brought to the police station or the government buildings. They're interrogated. They tell the Russian government, "Hang on a minute, Armov's a traitor. You know he has the golden eye, uh, so on and so forth." Uh, Armov murders the Russian defense minister, and then tries to blame it on Bond. But Bond and uh, Natalia escape. We get a really fun action sequence through running through the building. You know, gunfire, explosions, whatever. But Natalia is captured by Armov, who drives her off to the train where Trevelyan and Xenia are waiting for her. But then we get what is my favourite action sequence in this entire film. The goddamn tank chase between Bond and uh, Armov's car. So basically, Armov and the villains have this shitty Russian-made car whatever it is, uh, but they're driving through the streets and Bond is chasing them in this tank, just causing all kinds of mayhem. It's over-the-top ridiculousness, not to, the level of, not to the level of, like, a Fast and Furious film, but it's that kind of ridiculous silliness that's just about done right and balanced with, you know, nothing, nothing's, like, doing triple flips or anything, you know, like it is driving the way a tank would, it's causing the kind of damage that the tank would. Uh, and I just think it's a really well done chase sequence, you know. This is, I feel, one of the best films in the series in terms of action, outside of the later Daniel Craig films. Uh, and this is the highlight of the action for me. I love this chase scene because it is so goddamn extra. But uh, And it eventually ends up with Bond basically playing Russian roulette with a train, basically driving the tank onto the tracks and having the train ram it, which stops the train and we get the we get a face to face with Bond and Trevelyan, uh which Trevelyan escapes, uh but not before rigging the train to explode. But the villains es- the heroes uh, escape, obviously, and after figuring out where the 
secret base that Trevelyan is hiding the plans for the Golden Eye Inn. It's based in Cuba, so we get so we get a nice little trip to Cuba. Uh which is where the third act is. Uh we meet Jack Wade again, he takes Bond's car for reasons that I still don't really know why. Uh but it's okay. It it's a BMW, it's it's kinda shit. It's it's that sort of Z three hairdresser's car, but there was a big push for it in the nineties. BMW had got made some form of deal with the Bond producers, like, please make our car the new Bond car, but it didn't really stick. And um, by the time Die Another Day comes out, he's back with an Aston Martin, as all things should be, because that's one of the things that just, if Bond without an Aston Martin just isn't right in the world, as far as I'm concerned. But we get. And eventually, yeah, so we get the third act of the movie, which was, which is them storming the base. Uh, but not before we have this sort of nice, tender, sort of romance-building moment between Bond and Natalia, where Natalia talks about uh, Bond's relationship with Trevelyan, you know, telling him, like, I know he was your mate before, but he's your enemy now and you need to kill him. And that and they try and give Natalia a little bit extra character by just having her go off on Bond, like, yo, you you and Trevelyan, yo, you kill people, why? Do, how does that make you feel? Does it make you feel like a big man? That type of thing that, yo, here it's a tiny bit heavy-handed, but it ex- it's explored later on in the Craig films really well. But it's nice that they were at least trying to give a little bit more depth to Brosnan's Bond. Uh, a little bit more darkness. Uh, but yeah, and then we get the storming of the base scene. We get uh, Xenia's death, which I I, always, I think this is tremendous. This is a really funny moment. Basically, uh, they're in the jungle and Xenia's kicking the shit out of Bond. But he, he manages to kill her by uh, using his... Oh, that type of, it's that pulley gun, that gun that Batman always uses. Uh, to attach it, grappling gun, that's it, grappling gun, attaches it to a tree, shoots at a helicopter, which uh, Xenia is sort of strapped to, like she jumps from the helicopter down, Uh, so he attaches the grappling gun to the tree, shoots the helicopter, the helicopter goes down, and it shoots Xenia back up to where she is essentially choked to death between a tree and a falling helicopter, uh, not choked in so much the throat, just sort of like her waist and just it just pushed back until she ultimately got stomach strangled, basically. Uh, and we get a brilliant, brilliant one-liner from Bond, uh, which is, you know, she always liked a good squeeze. Every time I watch this movie, that line just still makes me laugh. Uh, yeah, so that's the end of Xenia. Lover, great henchman, one one of the best henchwomen in the history of the series. Uh, then we get inside the base where they're captured. Uh, Trevelyan and Bond have this amazing one back and forth where Trevelyan monologues like, "This is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna steal from this bank in London, and then I'm gonna use, gonna use the Golden Eye to wipe all the records. So I'm gonna have millions." Uh, and also is going to send Britain back to the Stone Age because I'm still mad at them for stuff that happened before I was born. Uh, but what I really love about this sequence is this whole scene is just the a line at the end where Bond, he's talking about how you know Bond was always loyal to the loyal to the MI six, uh, and he uses this amazing line where it's just you know. Do all the vodka martini, do all the vodka martinis silence the screams of all the men you've killed? And then one of the guards brings in Natalia and he just this amazing line. It's like, oh, do you find comfort in the arms of all those women for all the dead ones you failed to protect? And I just think that's such a brilliant line. I love that line uh, because it does. It's one of those things. It takes. It shines a spotlight on the fact that Bond as a character is quite fucked up in a way because he kills all these people and he all these women because there's so many Bond girls who die across all the series, you know? 
Like, he had a wife. Bond had a wife at one point, And she was murdered on their wedding day. And in, uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, played by the late, great Diana Rigg. Uh, great film, by the way. So, I just think it's a great little spotlight on the inside of Bond's character that doesn't usually come out, especially in older Bond films like this. Uh, and yeah, so, Bar- and then we have a scene with Boris, he can't, you know, the, pl- the coats have been changed by Natalia, he freaks out, you know, you start to really see his weasel ways start to come out, and his- he's a little bitch, and it's really starting to come out here. And then he accidentally sets off Bond's exploding pen, uh, and then we get the final action, and then eventually we get the final action sequence between Bond and Trevelyan on top of the dish of this uh, st- satellite station, uh, and it's and it's really good because, like I said, this is the first time we've had a phys- a proper physical match for Bond in a main villain. It's usually always the henchman who's the physical match, and then once the henchman is gone, Bond has to do something that outsmarts the main villain who isn't an imposing threat because he has obviously he has the henchman but here you know he's a former double o so obviously he has the physicality uh and so event and it eventually ends up with this uh bond dangling over the over the precipice and you know things happen so sorry this it, it's not that i've not haven't seen the film it's just it's kind of hard to explain action sequences without sort of having a visual representation. This is, again, something I will work with in later episodes. But we guess... It eventually ends up with Trevelyan clinging off the edge and uh, him just saying to Bond, you know, oh, for England, James, which is a great callback to uh, the scene at the start, the opening sequence in the in the secret Russian base where he's, you know, he's very much where he's friends and, you know, the old uh, line was, you know, oh, for England, James. And Bond just has this awesome line, which is like, no, for me, and then just kicks him off the, drops him all the way to the ground in a fall that would kill anyone, really, but somehow Sean Bean lives uh, for now, uh, which is... Something I should, I do really like about this film is how the all, how the three main villains, uh, Trevelyan, Xenia, and Boris, all three of their deaths are character related, like fitting of their character. Trevelyan falls and we think he's dead, but he's still somehow breathing, which is a great uh, little nod to the fact that he returned from the dead, pretty much. Uh, and then the satellite dish falls on him, uh, which obviously does kill him, which is a nice little callback to when Natalia is in the wreckage of of the Sevenaya station at the start. Uh, a rig, a, a bit of roof rigging almost falls and kills her, uh, but she survives. So I think that's a really nice mirror. Obviously, you know, Xenia being squeezed to death is perfect irony in terms of how her character was as a villain and then the last villain to die in the film is uh boris he he survives the big explosion uh and he gets up and he realizes he's the last one in there still alive and he just does his you know i am invincible and then this bit and these three big tanks of i don't know what but it's some dangerous science acid thing that freezes like carbon freezing or whatever it kills him instantly but uh it explodes right onto him and we just sort of get this froze his hilarious looking frozen boris sickle kind of you know like a popsicle a just evil russian shithead weasel hacker and yeah, that's the end of it. So it's like, he, he thinks he's invincible and then bam, he gets killed. That's a perfect way for him to die. And also painful. Uh, so yeah, so all three of the villains die in fitting ways, which is, again, I really like that. Uh, and then you get the end where Bond and Bond and Natalia shift each other and they go off into the sunset with Jack Wade and a helicopter and it's all smiles and giggles and the... Uh, credits roll because 
at, back at this point, it was still, you know, Bond saves the day, Bond shifts the girl, the end. They don't, they don't make him like that anymore for many reasons. Uh, so yeah, that's the end of the film. Uh, I have about 15 minutes left on this, so uh, I'm going to quickly run through some of the facts about the film in terms of its impact and its uh, box office returns. I'll go through the box office first. It was released, uh, weirdly enough, because with with modern Bond films, we get them released in the UK nowadays a week early a week before the US but here the US got it a week before the UK did it was released on the 17th of November 1995 in the US in its opening weekend it grossed 26 million dollars it was number one that opening weekend uh overtaking Ace Ventura 2 uh Although it didn't, although it was only number one for one week, the next week it was a uh, beaten. It was knocked down to number two in the box office, by the new by the new release that weekend, which was Toy Story. So tech. So one bit of history that Goldeneye has for itself is that it was the first live action movie to ever be knocked off the number one U.S. box office spot by a three D animated movie. Yeah, it's it's an honor. Uh, and then it was released on the 24th of November, 1995, in the UK, where it made in its opening weekend 5.2 million. Uh, and it was it was number one in the UK for about two weeks. Uh, and worldwide, it grossed overall $352 million, which in 2021 is not a huge amount you know, by modern standards, but by nineteen ninety five standards, this was very successful. It was the most success. It was the most financially successful Bond film since nineteen ninety sorry nineteen seventy nine's Moonraker. Uh, uh, I don't know if it made as much as Moonraker, but it was the most successful since Moonraker. So that's that's a good fifth ten to fifth ten almost fifteen years. Uh. 10 15 years uh record uh the film did so well in its november spot that ever since then every bond film has been released around that time of year you know every it's always oct it's always now late october or november or december for a bond film to be released because license to kill came out in the middle of july didn't do well golden eye did really well in november and that's a strategy that uh Eon Studios has taken since then to always release them in November. Uh, no Time to Die was meant to break that, uh, but it obviously it didn't. Uh, it was directed by Martin Campbell, who would not return for the sequel, Tomorrow Never Dies, but would return about 10 years later to direct the next debut Bond actor film, Casino Royale. So that's really impressive for Martin Campbell. The fact that he's directed two Bond films, Golden Knight and Casino Royale, two of the best of two of the best Bond films ever. So he really gets the series. But uh yeah, so it was directed um and yeah, so that's pretty much it. You know, it did really well at the box office, but its biggest cultural impact as a film was the Golden Eye game. Uh, which was, I believe, on the N sixty four. I'm not huge. I'm not huge into gaming, so I wouldn't know. I wouldn't really know my systems apart, uh, especially from that time because I wasn't even born then. But um, yeah. So the game has become an icon in itself. Uh, I feel like more people nowadays remember the game than the movie. Uh, but yeah. So for an entire generation, it was the game. You know. I feel like uh, it was the generation that became that came before my generation. This was their game. My generation's game to this day will die on this hill. My generation's game was Simpsons Hit and Run. So it was the Simpsons Hit and Run of its day. Uh, so that's pretty much it. Like I said, I have about 10 minutes left on this. So I'm going to leave it at that. Um... Yeah, so this was my first episode of my podcast. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Uh, 
I, I enjoy talking about this. Oh, actually, no, I'm going to run through a few things just now that I forgot to mention. I'm kicking myself that I forgot to mention the Bond and Q gadget scene. I'm going to talk about that just right quickly because I love this scene. Desmond Llewellyn's Q was the best. Him and Bond always had amazing banter, no matter who the actor was. And I always put that down to Desmond Llewellyn. He was an amazing Q, utterly amazing. And uh, he's, this was, this I think this was like his 15th time in the role, 15th or 14th. Uh, he, would, he would do two more films after this, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies and The World Is Not Enough. On screen, they had started to work towards it, retiring Q because the actor was getting quite old at that point. Uh, so, but unfortunately, about a week or so after The World's Not Enough came out, Desmond Llewellyn was killed in a car crash. So Brosnan was Llewellyn's last Bond, uh, but they had maybe the best chemistry of any Q and Bond. Uh, and I just want to make a point of that because, you know, Desmond Llewellyn, Desmond Llewellyn was an amazing Q and the banter they had and the gadget scenes were always really fun because, you know, the gadgets are one of the most fun elements of the series. Uh, and Bond and Q, just that whole Bond and Q relationship is always fun to watch, even when it's Daniel Craig and Ben Wishaw now in the modern films. So yeah, so I just wanted to bring that up quickly at the end because it slipped my mind while I was going through the film. Uh, so yeah, that's pretty much it. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm not, I haven't decided what my next film will be. I know a couple films that I want to have that I want to do, but I might wait until I can go around to a friend's house and talk about them because I, I, they're films that my friends adore and I want them to be the films that they have their first appearance on the show talking about, you know? Uh, obviously, COVID, not co obviously, uh, obviously taking into account COVID as well. So I don't know what my next film's going to be, I have some ideas, though. I will keep you up to date with what I decide. But, um, yeah, this was the end of the film. Th th this is the end of the review. Uh, now this is the end of the, pod of the podcast. Sorry, uh, I'm, I'm getting a little bit rambly now. Again, I will work on that. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this. I imagine it's some form of a train wreck. But, uh, yeah, so this is my first time. Hopefully I get better. Please, God, I get better. But uh, I hope you enjoyed it, because uh, I enjoy talking about this. I love talking about Bond films, uh, and just films in general. This is going to be a lot of fun, you know. Hopefully this is also like a nice release for me from just the stress I'm going through with college work at the minute. Uh, so I'm going to leave it at that, uh, running up on about 52, 53 minutes. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Please stay tuned next time. This has been the Macho Movie Man Review. And uh, that's it. Talk to you. Bye.